podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So things are slowing down in many of our businesses this time of year. It's that one time of the year where maybe your inbox just slows down just a tinge. How's things looking in that inbox over there, boss man? Disastrous. (laughs) Well, this time of year, I always get a little reflective. And we thought it would be cool just to take a look back on 2016 here at the TMBA podcast. I think it's fair to say that this show's changed a lot in the last year. It has. One of the reasons for that is that it's not just me and you freaking out on Wednesday nights anymore trying to figure out what to talk about, but we have a team in place. And they're pressuring us now, and we're freaking out even more. (laughs) It's one thing to let yourself down. It's another thing to let the whole team down. If I were to think about what were some of the themes this year for me, from my perspective, the first is is that, you know, since we haven't been doing so much business, we really can't do anything without mentioning the fact that we sold our business, which I think the shelf life on that is pretty much over at this point. (laughs) I think we need to go Ricardo Semler on that and throw all of it in the fire. Maybe in 2017. Start fresh. Can't be those guys that sold their business. Yeah. We can't just ride that coattail forever. But speaking of Ricardo, one of the themes for me was how much our guests have changed. You know, in the past, it was like, if this person wasn't someone that we'd known for three years and Skyped with regularly anyway, they would never really make it to the show. And that's for a variety of reasons that I think are pretty boring to explain, but it takes a long time to vet people that you don't know, you know, and to figure out how to have a conversation with them and what's interesting about them. And having a team in place, Jane as our producer, really changed the quality of guests that we were able to bring onto the show this year. And that's one of the things I'd like to do with this program is just highlight some of our favorite conversations, replay some of our favorite quotes from some of our favorite conversations of 2016. So speaking of themes, Ian, sometimes we do talk about this, quite have lively conversations like, what does the TMBA podcast mean? And we certainly wouldn't pain the audience by recording such conversations, but I think we can at least agree on that at the core of it, this show is about building businesses that pay us in more currencies than just cash, building businesses that give us personal freedom and flexibility. Since day one, every episode has that at its core, I think. Ian, me and you over the years, maybe we haven't changed that much, but there's no question that the audience has. This concept is getting much, much more popular. I wouldn't say it's mainstream by any means, but the amount of people that are fascinated by the opportunity to build a business like this has just absolutely skyrocketed. But governments still haven't caught up. With some rare exceptions that we've highlighted on this show, governments haven't really gotten hip to this idea. And that was so clearly shown by our interview with Esther Jacobs. What's fascinating about Esther's story is that she was so remarkable in her home country of the Netherlands that she was actually made a knight. That's some serious stuff. But then effectively got banned from the country that knighted her. And here's just a bit of that story. 
one day in 2013, I went to the city hall to renew my passport. And it's a pretty standard procedure, right? So I go there, but they didn't want to renew my passport because they said, Miss Jacobs, you don't live here anymore. So I was like, this must be a mistake. You know, what's going on? And they got a supervisor and they looked at the screen. They looked at me and they said, no, you don't sleep enough nights in your own home. There is a law in the Netherlands that says you have to sleep for four months in a location in order to be registered there. So they sent away a taxpayer without a passport and they said, we know where you're sleeping. You're under investigation for fraud. I was so frustrated. In the beginning, I thought it was a mistake. And then I was treated like a criminal and I was frustrated. And then I got angry. So at this point, you can't travel because you don't have a passport. Is that right? I could travel. But for example, to go to the United States where my father lives, the passport needs to be valid for six months and I couldn't go there. So I couldn't celebrate Christmas with my father. And that really, that really made me angry because, of course, like for many people listening, freedom is one of my main assets. And if you're not allowed to travel somewhere, that really takes away your freedom. And then I realized how important a passport is and how vulnerable you are when you cannot get it renewed. After a while, when I didn't get a reaction and nothing seemed to be happening, I pulled all the strings I could pull. So I wrote a blog And I posted it, I believe, on a Sunday afternoon. And on Monday morning, like the next morning, the ministers were having a meeting on my case. It was like a government meeting on my case. They discussed it for three weeks. Their conclusion was that the law saying that you have to sleep somewhere for four months in order to be registered, of course, is not meant for people like me. But technically the city hall was correct to apply it because the law is there and, you know, they applied it. So they said the law is not prepared for pioneers like you, so we cannot help you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. And there I was. The city, they got, you know, permission to deregister me. So they deregistered me from my own house where I was actually living. The first thing I lost was my parking permit, which isn't a big deal. But then I lost my voting rights, my pension rights, my right to social security. My company got deregistered from the Chamber of Commerce because, ma'am, in order to have a company, you need an address. (laughs) So after my company got deregistered, they closed my bank accounts and they closed my phone plan because you need a Chamber of Commerce number to have a business account or to have a business phone plan. So it was like my world was falling apart. There was only one organization that kept saying, Miss Jacobs, to us, you are and will always be a citizen of the Netherlands. And that was the tax service. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in our shows, Dan, sometimes we can get into some pretty philosophical stuff. And I know that this is deeply rooted in your former career as an academic philosopher. (laughs) Does it go anywhere besides that, by the way? It never went anywhere. But I honestly think there was this meme in our community going around for a while that was essentially the idea that to get to that first $100,000 of business income, it really is about mindset so many times. It's not like, oh, I don't have enough marketing or I don't have enough this or that. Oftentimes, it's just figuring out what it is about your self-beliefs and the concepts in your head that are standing in the way between you and business success. Ego. (laughs) got to get over it it could be ego yeah i don't know it's it's, it could be anything so this year we had on pete adeny from mr money mustache mr financial badassity i think that's what he says really enjoyed having pete on because he gets me thinking about 
all the ways in which we could be living our lives differently to get ahead. By the way, it's worth pointing out now that if y'all want to check out the links to all these original episodes, some of our favorite episodes from 2016, we're going to be putting the show notes to this app at tropicalmba.com slash review 2016. Here's Pete. The biggest thing to do is just make sure you're not doing work that you don't believe in and don't keep chasing more money as a way of keeping score. Like, okay, I got my first five million, but imagine how prestigious I would be if I had 50 million. Or these guys in the Forbes 400, they have like billions of dollars. I got to keep going. So just shut that whole part off. Just turn the whole money part off. And I have this rule for myself that helps to avoid getting too giddy when there's extra money around. And it is, if you're deciding what work to do, only do work that you would do for free. And if you're deciding to buy something, pretend that the price is $0, but make sure you have other values coming into play too. Like, do I actually want to create this much pollution by buying this thing? And is there a better use for this money where I can create more happiness? And that helps prevent you from just ending up with a marina full of yachts and stuff. But in general, more money won't make you any more happy because you already probably had your needs covered, but it can help give you the mental fortitude to not keep working on stuff that's a waste of your time. And speaking of philosophy, one of my favorite episodes of the year, when RibbonFarm.com's Venkatish Rao came on the show and shared with us a broad range of his philosophies about business and life. He also shared your favorite word now, which is heuristic. When if you say it in mixed company, you have to explain what it means. And by mixed company, I don't mean men and women. I mean smart people and really smart people still don't know what it means. It means rule of thumb. <laughs> the first and most important one, I think, is to do it on your own terms and when you're in a good place rather than when you're in a bad place. And where, yes, when I left Xerox, I could have stayed. They valued me there. There was no particular reason to leave. But that's actually the kind of state where you want to leave. Whereas if you leave right after a massive project failure or getting into like a toxic fight with your bosses or because you hate everybody and suddenly decide I'm going to walk off and show them, those are really bad mindsets with which to exit the corporate life. Because remember, I mean, lifestyle design and the non-corporate lifestyle, it's a choice made by individuals and there are hundreds of millions of other people around the world who are still living in corporations. And you and I as free agents often work with these people, consult for them. And it's important not to sort of turn this into a tribal us versus them, corporate people are evil and we are the sort of brave new future kind of dialectic. Because Honestly, there's some serious hypocrisy in that kind of uh, stance because uh, what do you do? You go put up your website, park yourself in Bali, and the first thing you do is go cold call and pitch half a dozen Fortune 500 companies and ask for gigs, right? Speaking of philosophy, it seems like that's all we were focused on. You know, if you're not going to be focused on making money, you better be focused on thinking. <laughs> David Hennemeyer Hansen was on the show this year. A true business philosopher, I would say. Yep, and creator of Ruby on Rails and the co-founder at Basecamp. He stopped by to drop some value bombs on us. One of the reasons Dan and I sold our businesses because we were just bored of it. And it was actually a great cash generating machine, but that's simply all that it was. And it wasn't providing us with much any other fulfillment outside of that. It sounds like you are still excited about the product, but it also seems like, you know, you've been running it for a long time. Why shouldn't there be an opportunity for some kind of exit? Are you keeping it around because it's a good cash generator or are you keeping it around for other reasons? Are you thinking about selling it? Keeping it around and we will keep it around forever because it gives 
gives us the platform to try all the things that we want to do to keep ourselves entertained. And I think very many entrepreneurs that I've talked to who've sold their business ended up regretting it because you think when you hit a good thing, oh, well, I was so great at making this thing work. I can do that again. No problem. I'll just start the next thing. And then they found out, oh, actually, that was harder than I thought. And for all sorts of reasons. And it's like, as in, I don't want to be 22 again. <laughs> I don't. Like, that was a great time. I'm not going to start the business again. I'm just, I'm not. Like, I don't want to go through all that again. Like, I had that phase of my life. It was a great phase of my life. Now I'm in a different phase of my life. Let me enjoy that. So perhaps some people, they look back, like, on their glory years and, like, oh, yeah, man, high school was just the greatest. Remember, like, <laughs> did all these cool things. And, like, they constantly reminisce about that. I try to set things up in such a way that I don't have to do that. If there are things about Basecamp that annoys me, let's change them. If we want to pursue something else, if we want to play with other technology or business ideas or whatever, let's do it within the thing we've set up. The only reason I could think of to flush the whole thing is if you couldn't get on with the people. And these are the best people I've ever worked with. I have a very hard time seeing I'm going to sample a better crew of people to work with somewhere new. And to be honest, I don't want to. <laughs> I think it's fair to say one of the biggest changes in our lives that appeared on the show quite regularly last year was we had a little bit more time to play with our hobbies and with our toys, essentially. You know, <laughs> that for you, that might be race cars and mini motorcycles and your new home. And for me, it's bicycles and travel and things like that. And we did take some time to indulge that on this show and reach out to some people that inspire us outside of the business world. But one of the cool things was is that there was sort of a business story behind everybody that we reached out to. Yeah, on that note, I got to talk to Matt Farah and also Mr. Regular from the hit show, Regular Car Reviews. And these are both guys that are making a full-time living, making videos on YouTube about cars. And I have to give a little behind-the-scenes dish here, because I'm pretty sure that if you walked into a TMBA podcast production meeting and asked, like, what was the most special or surprising or unique interview of the year? I think we would all say Mr. Regular from Regular Car Reviews. There was something special about that, and I'm bringing it up because my guess is many regular listeners of the show may have skipped that episode because it's so different from the rest, but I think that there was some magic in there that we all really appreciated. And I think the magic, if we're being candid about it, the magic from Mr. Regular was his willingness to share his ideas about himself and his business and be reflective. And I think that that is a sign of somebody that's going to be very successful. He was real. <laughs> that's what you mean right <laughs> he was a totally real dude and here he is mr regular most of my friends now are related through the car world although i still don't get out and hang out there's only like three or four people i may go over to their houses where i'm pedaling as hard as i can with rcr as far as business friends the word business to me still sounds icky it conjures up images of a guy who did a lot of blow in college, who wants to talk about mergers and other platitudic phrases that mean nothing. Of course, that's me having a negative idea of commerce. Why do you think you're allergic to money in that way? Very good question. I don't know. I suppose I have a mental image of the local businessman, big fish in a small town with the big belly, the slick back hair, the gold rings, in a town where the biggest wheelers and dealers 
is the guy who owns three Dunkin' Donuts because a business owner is someone who can make terrible jokes to you and you have to laugh or you may be fired. I'm speaking in terms of menial jobs. Growing up, you think the manager of McDonald's is in his Toyota Camry LE, his high roller, because he has power over you. Doesn't that tie into the way I felt during high school, being under the thumb of larger boys who were, by virtue of their muscles and good looks, were in positions of power within this small high school? and not liking how it felt, and then going into your job, working at a produce market, flipping burgers, and it was more of the same. You are under the thumb of larger men and not liking how that felt. You felt there was nothing you can do but put on your apron and grin and bear it. I feared that someone involved in business only cared about what he or she could get from me and cared little about the way I felt. But at the same time, I know that to be successful in running something that makes money, your emotions should take a backseat to common sense. And I got to geek out with my favorite writer on the topic of cycling, Patrick Brady from Red Kite Prayer. He says many things better than I've heard them said anywhere else. And here's him talking a little bit about why he feels people are attached to the experience of riding bikes. I mean, a flow state is kind of the way to sum it up. It's not terribly hard to enter a flow state while riding a bicycle. And in flow, your brain releases dopamine. It releases endorphins, you know, runner's high. It also releases norepinephrine, which is a cousin to adrenaline. It's basically speed. When you have that experience where time slows down and you think, this is incredible. You know, I can see everything. The entire world goes slightly more technicolor. Your body also releases anandamide. That's a cousin to THC. You know, they plug into the same receptor. We know what THC comes from, at least if you've lived in a dorm, you probably have. And then there's finally serotonin, you know, which is the basis of all the antidepressants out there. And so you've got these different things that your body releases when you're in flow. And as one neuroscientist put it to me, you know, if we could package the perfect antidepressant, it would have all the things that are present in a flow state because it makes you happy. It's funny you mentioned the flow state bit and this like automatic have a good day engine. For some reason, I was so shut down to that possibility. I remember as a kid, I would get on my bike and point it in a direction and just go on an immediate adventure. Like I would ride as far as I thought was feasible until I could get some snacks at a gas station and ride back. I would see towns that I didn't live in and didn't know anything about. And I remember when I got older, I just thought, well, that's because I was a kid. Like I conflated the bike with being a kid. And I realized that you can get all the same feelings as an adult, that feeling of adventure, that beautiful aspect ratio of like when you're driving, it's too fast. When you're walking, it's too slow. And when you're riding, it's just right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, I like everybody else. I rode a bike as a kid and then I got a driver's license and wanted to get dates. And so, you know, a bicycle is pretty much anathema to that, at least our society in the 1980s. Nowadays, you know, millennials are going on dates on bikes and I sort of envy that. You know, there came a point in my 20s where I went for a ride one day on a bike after not having been on one for I don't know, six years or something. And I thought, good grief, why did I ever stop doing this? This is fantastic. You know, and that's all I needed. You know, I got a bike after that. It wasn't the next day, but I got one, you know, and I've been at it ever since. 
But at some point on our journeys, Dan, riding our bikes, driving our race cars, we realized that there may come a time where we just run out of money and don't have any more for goo or tires. <laughs> so we got back into the business side of episodes. We're learning, you know, looking for new opportunities. And certainly, if you were to put a thermometer into the business zeitgeist of 2016, you can't say a sentence without the word Amazon being in there somewhere. And so we did an episode with some Amazon experts. Here's two of those experts, Kiri Masters and Brad DeGraw, talking about the Amazon gold rush. And I think as much as we've framed Amazon FBA as this amazing platform, there are a few drawbacks. And one of them is that you don't own the customer, Amazon owns the customer. And you don't get their email address, you don't get any right or ability to remarket to them, at least digitally. And a lot of Amazon customers buy on Amazon because they like Amazon and they don't necessarily have a lot of loyalty to your brand necessarily at all. That is one of the challenges. On that same note, another challenge is fulfillment costs. And although it's a very simple model to have Amazon do all your inventory storage and fulfillment for you, some brands may find that they can get cheaper fulfillment services elsewhere, especially if they're moving a lot of product. If they had a choice between Amazon doing the fulfillment and their 3PL, their third-party logistics provider doing the fulfillment, they would rather funnel it through their own store. That's what you kind of have to contend with as a brand. If you're looking at a multi-channel strategy and you have an e-commerce store, maybe you even have brick-and-mortar retailers that are carrying your product and you have Amazon, you have to figure out which channel you ultimately want to direct people through. Maybe Amazon is one of those ways, but it's not the most profitable channel for you. Where are people screwing this up? I'm sure you guys got like friends and relatives coming out of the woodwork saying, guys, I just want to model your success. What are the problems with the people who aren't making this work? Where do you see the common hangups? If you didn't study a market, if you just went in with a me too, I'm going to do silicone barbecue gloves because I heard someone was making tons of money on that. You're just chasing products. You're going to fail. Another one is getting hooked up with a supplier that's shady. Maybe they screw you on a bait and switch. Maybe the materials aren't the same quality. Maybe they don't ship it or the last half of the shipment is rejects, but they gave them to you anyway. Those are some of the most scary places to fail. I would say also... If you overestimate the size of a market, you could be in for a rude shock when you can't generate enough sales. There's not enough people searching for that type of product on Amazon. And here it is again. I hate to even bring it up. So maybe this will be the last time in 2016 we bring it up, selling our business. To be fair, it's technically is the last time we can share it in 2016. You're very clever there. <laughs> Leave the door open. Leave it cracked. <laughs> we had the woman that bought our business on the show, which I think is a very unique opportunity to have to keep in touch with the person that buys your business, at least at the scale that we sold our business at. She got the opportunity to comment on my cheapness. So I appreciate that. I got to say, I love this episode. Like the long-term hardcore TMBA fans, this was easily the consensus favorite for 2016 best episode. Not only for you kind of getting raked over the coals a little bit, which is great, but just how cool of a story it was to hear from the inside of how the whole thing went down. And some people came to me and said, hey, that episode where you guys sold the business and Tino came on and talked to Ian, 
that was the best episode of the year. You should do more like that. And I'm like, well, at this rate, we'll do one every eight years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So here's Tino Sage. What I said I liked about you and the company especially was that once I actually got your tax returns and compared them with your financials and everything else, everything actually did match. It's interesting how often that stuff does not match and sometimes wildly does not match. When it comes to the initial sell that brokers are generally making with a business, you find out it's not all the truth so often. I would say 50%. And I asked for and got the proposals from at least 50 businesses when I was looking because I looked for, you know, eight months or so. I would say 50% of them, there was something not right about what had been pitched. So they would say, oh, we've got sales of $2 million. Well, they had sales of $2 million three years ago, and now they have sales of one. Or they'll say the owner works 10 or 15 hours a week. And then you actually talk to the owner and the owner's like, well, that's how often I'm in the office. But I'm really, you know, like this one guy, I was getting close to a deal with the guy and it was a service business. And I came to his office, we sat down and we were going through some of the financials he was giving me. And this is evening. So all of his employees would be gone because employees didn't know he was selling the business. And the phone kept ringing and he kept answering it. And then finally he says, oh, Oh, yeah, I cover the phones at night. And I'm like, well, for how long at night? He goes, until six in the morning. <laughs> and it was like nine o'clock at night. And somebody was calling. It's not that they were calling every five minutes, but somebody was calling every hour. And he says, oh, usually, you know, it stops around 11. And they stop. And I'm like, where do you get you work 10 hours a week out of that? <laughs> and that, my friends, is our wrap up. It's been 52 weeks and 52 podcasts, which is pretty cool. I'm not going to give myself too much credit for that. Thank you, Jane. And thank you, Arison, who are both our producer and our editor. And Dan, I just want to say this too. This is a little inside baseball. This is the first year that we have legitimately come out with episodes more than a day before they were due. So (laughs) it used to be the TMBA standard that we would be recording pretty much the night before an episode was to be released. And I really thank our team for setting us straight on that. Absolutely. I think it's the first time we've ever just been here every week. You know, if we're going to be podcasters, we've got to be here every week. And that level of professionalism just was not a part of our organization in 2015. I think it's fair to say. (laughs) (laughs) So this episode was just a tiny selection. Some of our favorites and some of the different topics we touched, including getting to speak with one of our longtime inspirations, one of the inspirations of this show, Ricardo Semler. Recently, one of the most exciting and nerve-wracking moments of 2016 for me, for sure. If you like this episode, we highly encourage you to check out the back episodes. We're going to have a link to everything mentioned in this show at tropicalmba.com slash review 2016. And when you're there, there's an easy link to the complete podcast archive, which is at our website. And speaking of inspirations, we have a final clip here, Ian. You want to roll it in? I don't even know how to say it. What's the, when you introduce it? <laughs> we had Alex Bloomberg on the show from Gimlet Media. And he said something, I think, pretty magical about the world of radio and podcasting. And here he is. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is sort of like what I think the power of audio is, which is I think it's an inherently more empathetic medium than TV in that 
you know, people are listening to us. They don't see us. They hear our words, so they know we're real people, but they're sort of creating their own images of who we are. And in that act of creation, as they listen to us, we are now part of them in a way. And so it's easier to empathize with the words we're saying. It's so fascinating you say that because I was recently found myself turning down a TV interview, which is incredible for a self-promoter like myself. And I thought the reason is, is I felt like I would just be put in front of people to be judged. Yeah. Why do you love this format so much? Well, I mean, for that reason, because like, I feel like if what you're trying to do is understand people and their motivations and, and trying not to judge them and trying to understand them, I feel like audio is a much better medium for that. Like you can just hear their words and you don't judge how they look and you don't judge what they look like and all that stuff. To me, I think that will be important whatever we launch is that like it'll be using audio to its full power, which is to help be a little bit of a corrective to the general media landscape, which is all about like retreating to your camps and lobbing potshots at one another. Well said, and I think it's fair to say that we agree. And speaking of the power of audio, we'll be back next week with our first show of 2017, talking to Airbnb's resident SEO guru and the creator of ClickMinded, Tommy Griffith. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.